Welcome to the Astronaut Philosophy Podcast. When you use the word dog, like in the phrase, my dog died, subconsciously we sort of soften it. It's not the same as when we say, my daughter died or my best friend died. When we hear someone say, my dog died, we secretly say to ourselves, at least it's not a person. And if we don't say it, we act it out. We show empathy, but it's tempered. And I get that. I do. I do it too. But strangely, when I was at the vet, after Lenny's heart had stopped beating... I found this same bias expressed by the doctor speaking to me. After a few minutes in the back, the doctor came out to tell me that she was gone. I don't know what prompted this in me. Maybe it was because I gave her CPR, and as I did, I imagined they would use defibrillators when I got there. That if I could just keep her on until they could shock her, it would turn the tide. So when he said she was dead, I just asked, did you use a defibrillator? His response was no. That they didn't have a defibrillator and that he had never even heard of anyone using a defibrillator on a dog. Now, I was confused at this because I knew for a fact at least some vets did, and I just assumed that they all did. Defibrillators are common in public spaces. When you get hired in any sort of public service, for example, you're going to get some training on one. A defibrillator is not like an MRI machine or neurosurgery where you need lots of money and training and staffing. It's more analogous to a tourniquet. They're relatively more common because they're relatively cheap and easy to use. I asked the doctor... Why wouldn't you, as a caregiver, want to be prepared for cardiac arrest? He looked at me directly. His answer was simple. They're not people. I just looked at him, and then I looked down at Lenny. They're not people. Let me be clear about what he meant. He was not stating some kind of technical difference in species. He was telling me how he does his job. They're not people. So we are not obligated to buy that equipment. And if you want that, you can go 40 minutes up the road.
Let me also be clear what I looked like in that moment. I was shirtless. Lenny had collapsed on the pavement unexpectedly. Both of my knees were dripping blood because I dropped to the ground and I tried to revive her on the concrete. I was covered in sweat because I'd been giving her CPR the whole ride over for 15 minutes. I could feel the rise and fall in her chest as I exhaled into her, but I couldn't get a response. And as that time went on, I began to cry. The tears were still streaming down my face. So that answer, they're not people, flipped a switch in me. I didn't scream. I didn't cuss him out. But my voice was raised and I was upset. He immediately fled to the back. And so the exchange spilled out, first to the back and then to the lobby. Eventually I turned back to Lenny and I just fell down on top of her. I loved on her and I stroked her and I cried some big tears. I even started to give her compressions in my sorrow. And then I stood up and I went back out to argue again. And then I turned around and I picked her up off the ground and I held her and I walked outside. I'm not ashamed that I wasn't stoic. That was my companion. And that answer was bizarre. When you sell us health insurance policies like humans, offer supplements identical to humans, anxiety meds identical to humans, give them children's toys, set them on a vaccine schedule like they're going into kindergarten. You call me to the front desk and you say, Lenny's dad. Then you draw a six-figure salary. But when I have a complaint or try to point something out in a rational, critical way, well, they're not people. I went to another vet for the cremation in Winston. I didn't really accept her death until they told me for a second time. But this staff was wonderful, empathetic. One of the front desk ladies cried when she saw the shape I was in. It may be that a defibrillator would have made no difference at all here. But that attitude was fucked. For this episode, I want to show my attitude to animal relationships, or at least to Lenny. I truly do believe, if you're open to it, a relationship with an animal can be as deep or deeper than anything else. Truly. 
the language we speak with animals is so much older than the language we speak with each other and even to ourselves. The language of our ancient past is a language of presence, of being here, now, with you, of touch, of moving through the world side by side. That, for me, is the oldest language. That way of speaking existed for eons before the first word. We walked thousands of miles for thousands of years before we ever said hello. And that movement of togetherness was my language with Lenny. I was Lenny's dad. I was Lenny's friend. In the 15 years she was alive, I was away from her only a handful of times. Training, the army, Afghanistan, maybe a few vacations, road trips, that was it. The rest, we were together. For 11 of those 15 years, I made all of Lenny's meals, usually by myself, but often with the help of a partner. Breakfast and dinner every day. Sweet potatoes, lentils, bananas, chicken, salmon, pork, anything that I thought would help her. And when her body changed, I changed the meals the best I could. For those 15 years, without fail, every week, me and Lenny went swimming. She was a water dog. I learned that the first time I took her to a public park in Charlotte. She was still on the leash when she jumped in, and I had to reel her in like a fish. She jumped as soon as she saw the water. No warning, no hesitation. If there wasn't water to swim in, she would literally just stand in a bucket. So until she died, I took her to the water every week, no matter where I had to drive. And sometimes it meant breaking the law on some private access beach or getting up at 4 a.m. so I could ignore the no dogs allowed signs posted. In the last three years, when she couldn't do more than swim a short distance, I began to get in with her. If I was there, she would stay in longer. And when she couldn't swim well, well then we would walk by the shore in chest high water just to get the resistance. We would play and it was like she was young again and I could tell she loved the feeling of moving fast in her old body. I did this routine year round. So, in the wintertime, when it's 30 degrees outside and there's frost on the grass, you could still find me in the water with Lenny. The first time I took her out there in winter, I was so scared of the cold, I dressed in a full wetsuit. 
I didn't have any booties or gloves or a head cover. I was just freezing, bald-headed, wind blowing hard, carrying my old girl out into the water. I noticed on those cold days, Lenny had more energy. She walked better all day. Probably because the blood flow was forced into places it didn't normally go. And I noticed I felt better too. So, I stopped wearing a wetsuit. In Savannah, people would just gather at the beach and watch us, huddled up in jackets and caps and gloves. And I'd carry Lenny into the cold, and we'd race with a stick back and forth. People in the condos would drink their morning coffee, and they would just watch. We did this each time until she'd done her best, and then I'd pick her back up, I'd hold her to my chest, and we'd walk out into the deep water. We'd face the sun as it came up, and we'd watch dolphins swim slowly past. The dolphins would sometimes come just a few feet away from us. They were curious, like they wanted to know what this thing was that I had in the water. If Lenny got scared, she'd throw her head over my shoulder so she didn't have to look. And if she was curious, she'd keep looking and sniff in their direction. When I sensed she'd had enough, I'd set her loose and we'd swim side by side to the shore. When we got to the sand, I'd pick her up and I'd carry her to the car. We paddleboarded a lot, too. We've done that for years. I never really had to teach her. There was no instruction. Just the first time she saw me on it, she hopped on it, and she laid down at the front, and that was that, and we went. She could never allow me to be on this paddleboard in any way unless she participated. So even as an old lady, she would howl at the dock until I got back. Once, around the age of 11, she almost died because of this dedication. I went for a long paddle around sunset and I locked her in the yard. I paddled out a long ways, over a quarter mile, until it was a little harder to pick out our place from the other places on the shore. And as I paddled, something told me I should turn around. When I looked over my shoulder, way out, over a hundred yards from shore, I see this little blonde-headed dot leaning. My heart jumped because she was already beset with arthritis, and this was a long way. I turned around, and I paddled as fast as I could go. When I got to her, she looked completely panicked, and I reached down, pulled her up by the neck, and rolled her onto the board with me. We both lay there, totally out of breath, and looked at each other. There was a 
surreal realization that she would die to be beside me because she saw us as a unit because that's what we were. When I first got Lenny with my partner at the time, I was drunk. <laughs> I basically was tricked into it. My girlfriend of hers wanted to get rid of Lenny because she was a lot to handle. The man who handed her off reiterated this, and he said, this is a wild one. And when we walked in, a cat was chasing her down the stairs, and she was screaming. <laughs> when I woke up after the agreement, the deal was already done, and I couldn't take it back. I named her Lenny after the song by Stevie Ray Vaughan. And I'll be damned if that name did not encapsulate her personality completely. She was a rascal. She never learned to walk on a leash, not till the very end. She listened maybe 20% of the time, but she had a heart of gold. She was pure loyalty. I could take her out to the forest from age one with no leash. Now it's a period that's ripe for a dog to take off and run and never come back. But she couldn't even go around the corner without stopping to look, make sure she could still see Dad, make sure I was coming. Sometimes in life, miracles happen, disguised as chaos. I look back at that moment and I see that's what Lenny was, a miracle. What I want to share now are some of the truly miraculous experiences I had with Lenny. Now this podcast episode is to honor her, not me. But I do have to talk a little bit about myself so that you can see how close we were and I can show you what we shared. If you've listened to the old episodes of my podcast, You've gotten a taste of some of this material and I've deleted it because I didn't want to look crazy but now I just don't care by my mid-twenties when Lenny was two or three I'd become fascinated with literature about healing I'd made this turn due to certain spiritual experiences I'd had. I felt things like healing touch or intentional healing or prayer represented a deeper connection that we had with all things and with something divine. The most compelling special cases and spontaneous remission, for example, of chronic illness, these almost always have some sort of spiritual reorientation in the surveys filled out by the patients. So in this period, when I was at my most persistent at attempting to break into this reality, this healing to reach God or 
cosmos or whatever you believe is out there. During that time, I stopped drinking, which is hard when you're 24 and 25. I started to experiment with healing, and Lenny was my patient. She was a weasel. She hated to snuggle. So from the beginning, she fought my approach. Because when I wanted to work with her, I would drape my entire body over her. So to do this, we had to get on the same page, which took time. Eventually, she could sense when the special times were, and she would allow this for a few minutes. I would close my eyes, and I would visualize an injury that she had. I'd visualize the cells and the buzzing, flittering particles and the energy and the light, which I thought would be under that. I would go back and forth, visualizing this model, trying to touch the deepest energy. I'd try to move it. Try to move it into other places in her body, things that we assume compose us, cells, tissues. I would fill Lenny with light. I had to be in a meditative state to do this. I tried this over a dozen times. Sometimes, something very interesting would happen. There would be a harmony between what I was reaching for and this something that actually responded. But it was still out of my control because as quickly as I slipped into it, I would slip back out again and it was finished. But when it did happen, Lenny and I could just look at each other like, did you feel that? On the first occasion where I felt like I went somewhere deeper, my wife remarked that Lenny was abnormally clingy above and beyond. And I could sense that too. She was definitely at my hip all night but she still had a little limp in her front leg, and that limp was what I wanted to heal. Now, I'll never know for sure, but my theory is, in meditation, I stumbled into something. That I didn't know what I was doing, that I was not skilled, but that something was there, and we touched it. This experience boosted my confidence. The most concrete example I have of this attempt was in our apartment in Raleigh. I had been working occasionally with my wife's eyes because they got very dry and she felt intense pain. It was during this time that I laid with Lenny, like I sometimes do in that meditative state. When I felt that unmistakable change in depth, the change you feel in those moments of meditation or prayer, that something has aligned, I knew I had affected something. There was a profound energy which was suddenly perceivable. That's what it felt like. 
When I finished, I immediately took her on a walk so I could see if her limp was better. I want to emphasize at this point that a 10-year-old dog with heavy arthritis in both front elbows doesn't just heal. She ran with a limp, and after exercise, she always had pain and struggled to get up. But this day, this particular day, she changed. She ran like a puppy. And when I say that, what I mean is, she would not stop. I threw nonstop with her for close to an hour. And you might shrug and say, well, that doesn't sound that crazy. But it was. I gave her no breaks, and she gave no signal she was tired. And I hadn't seen that in years. I actually became scared at one point that I'd kill her, that her heart would just explode and it would be my fault because I didn't stop. But her heart didn't explode and she didn't quit and she didn't limp. The whole time I kept saying one more and then one more, just one more. And I wanted to know how far we could push it. The answer seemed to be forever. We can do this forever until you accept this miracle. I remember looking up at the sky and saying something like, I get it. God, universe, whoever, I get it. Thank you. I kept that stick. I still have it. It's been five years or so, and I've had it wrapped up, and one day I'm going to turn the pieces of it into a picture frame. That night when we went home, she didn't limp like she always did. She didn't cry out when she stood. She didn't camp out on a cushion exhausted. And for over a month after that, her arthritis was gone. If you have a dog with bad arthritis, you know how huge that is. But this change wasn't permanent. And I never developed a regular practice to really keep it away. I didn't have a discipline. I just got swept up into my own problems, and I didn't make the time. So even sometimes I was guilty of that little phrase, they're not people. There are other things that happened outside of the healing. There were dreams. Two weeks ago, just before Lenny died so suddenly, I had a premonition. I dreamt of her sudden death. The dream had this taking place in a particular circumstance. She died after a struggle in water. That she emerged from the water and then just dropped dead. A few days ago, while doing our exercise in the water, all I could think about was that dream. I was watching her close because she was doing well. 
She was swimming faster than usual. She was going faster than me at certain points. And I got nervous. Sure enough, at the climax of the workout, when everything was going well, she collapsed, almost lifeless. Because I'd been watching her so close, I was able to dive over, and I kept her head from going under the water. And she was only chest deep, so I tried to stand her back up gently, and she collapsed again. Her back legs just gave way. She kind of leaned over like she would just lay down. I picked her up and brought her to shore and tried one more time. And this time, she was all right. This had never happened before, and we swam every week for 15 years. I had never seen this, and it came right on the heels of a dream about some struggle in the water and imminent death. For the following days, I convinced myself that I had beaten it. That this event had occurred as I dreamt it, but that I had saved her. I stopped her from going under, and that's what mattered, and so she would be all right. I even meditated some last week and tried to give her some good positive energy in whatever way I could. And then Wednesday, just like the dream, she collapsed, dead, heart stopped. For those of you who don't take premonition seriously, it's okay. I got another one. This, too, is about Lenny. I want to tell you about her dream, but it involves telling you about another one. My entire adult life, since the age of 20, I've had a particular dream that has repeated. It's never been about the future, and I've never totally understood it. I'm inside a house, usually alone. I feel the presence of an invisible evil force. I can feel it, and I tense up and try to prepare. This force picks me up it drags me around. I struggle to escape it. I'm scared. I'm screaming or fighting. And then I wake up. This dream stayed basically the same until the summer of 2020. That summer, for the first time, the evil force didn't come for me. It came for Lenny. And it came for Lenny in a very specific way. It wrapped around her neck and generated a slow, compressive, strangulating force, like invisible fingers choking the air out of her. I woke up horrified. The dream had a different quality to it, and the dreams about the future usually do. There's just this way of knowing that they're significant. There's no metric that can ever capture this in a survey or a diagnostic questionnaire. It's just this ineffable part of being a human that I have to accept with humility. In those days, my morning routine 
was to go into a quiet room in the basement. I would meditate there and try to develop my intention for directing my life or healing or maybe just having a good day. This particular morning, I started to really meditate on Lenny and on her neck. But there was a lot I didn't understand. Was the neck symbolic? Did it mean her actual breath was being choked out? Or was it just about her getting older? Was it a metaphor for her life force, slowly but naturally fading? A week or two later, I have another dream that answers this question. A monkey runs after me. It climbs up my body and it hits me in the face. In mythology and dreams, monkeys often represent mischief and mayhem. In this dream, it was clearly that. I chase the monkey and he runs around a corner. When I get there, the monkey's gone. But I see Lenny. Lenny is laying there and she's collapsed on the ground lifeless. And I know within the dream, as I look at her, that she's been strangled. That the monkey has strangled her. It's very specific. I run up to her to save her, but before I can, I wake up. After that dream, I get very paranoid. This is not the first time I've had a dream that I felt might be about reality. I watch her close. When I watch her swimming, I think maybe her breath is not as strong as it used to be. But am I just imagining that because of the dreams? Am I always right with these dreams? Do I always interpret them correctly? Is it her nose? Is it her lungs? I don't know. I took her to the vet. I made an appointment. But I had little to offer except just concern. And I sure couldn't tell her about the dreams. Looking back, the vet really didn't have a lot to offer either. They didn't ask a single diagnostic question, which would have been helpful given a dog with potential breathing problems. For example, a diagnostic question like, has Lenny had a change in voice? That would have nailed it, because she had. Instead, they shrugged and subtly hinted that specialists are expensive and maybe I don't want to go down that road. Now, if you're listening to this part of the story and you're wondering if this was the same vet as I discussed at the beginning of the podcast, the answer is yes. Yes, it is. A few months went by, and all I could do was really wonder. 2020 was a crazy year for me. Then it was a crazy year for my family in particular. And then suddenly it was a crazy year for the world. So I had a lot going on. My only solution for Lenny was to be careful. So when I played fetch with her, I made sure my phone was not in my pocket in case I needed to jump in. I do short throws, and I watch really close. 
Then suddenly in November, things got bad. She began to make a horrible snoring noise when she breathed. Not just exercising, but at rest or even sleeping. I knew there was a blockage, but I imagined it was in her nose. Or maybe I just wanted it to be in her nose so it wouldn't be life-threatening. After a few days of this, I took her back to the vet. I didn't have an appointment this time, so I had to pay an extra $300 to have her admitted the same day as an emergency. They accepted the money and brought her in. But in the end, they said the snoring, whatever it is, is not an emergency. They give me a non-emergency referral to a specialist in Winston. The specialist gives me an appointment a few weeks out. Now, if I know anything about medicine, I know that when there's an issue with an airway, it brings the urgency up drastically. That's because with airway blockages, you don't know how long you have before it closes. It could be 10 minutes. It could be 10 seconds. But if you have no familiarity with what you're trying to diagnose, and therefore no diagnostic criteria, well, you're not going to get it right. And this vet didn't get it right. So I took Lenny home with my referral. That night, I was not feeling good about it. I've had two dreams now, and it sounds like she's having trouble breathing. The snoring is pitiful. Even in her sleep, I'm awake watching her. So that night, after the vet, I'm about to feed her. It's dinner time, and like any dog, she gets excited. In her excitement, her breathing suddenly got very labored. It sounded like someone was having an asthma attack. It was very raspy and scary, like she could die at any second. I scooped her up and I threw her in the car, and we went 100 miles an hour down the highway to a second vet as an emergency for the second time, this time in Winston. I thought that she would die on the way there, and I kept putting my hand on her. When I got there, they went to draw blood, and her airway closed, and they almost lost her. She was put on oxygen and sedated to keep the airway open. She was observed overnight and then scheduled for an emergency surgery the following morning. I want to point out here that she was diagnosed immediately by the vet on staff without any special diagnostic equipment. This lady was just tracking the threats to a dog of that age and breed. She later told me for this illness, they do about a hundred surgeries a year. So why is this relevant to my dreams about strangulation? Lenny had something called laryngeal paralysis. It's where the nervous system no longer functions properly and the larynx closes, but it can't open back up. 
The effect is the dog is suffocated by its own body. Like strangulation, like the first dream, a slow compression, the airway gets gradually smaller and usually the dogs die when they need to breathe the most during exercise or heat. The surgeon later told me Lenny had the most advanced case he had ever seen because she was making these awful snoring sounds that you can see online. She was making those while at rest, while sleeping. Because I was so paranoid, because of the dreams, I was able to get three more good years with Lenny. And I'm thankful for those dreams and for whatever force in this world creates these experiences. As a side note, if you own a lab, you should YouTube this. Laryngeal paralysis. Labs are not an exotic breed of animal. And 100 surgeries a year probably means thousands of undiagnosed and dead animals. You should know about it so you can look out for your companions. This episode is dedicated to Lenny. She allowed me to have this connection with her soul. And she allowed me to touch grass and touch heaven. She gave me love so that I could receive it and give it back. And she was a special girl with a special heart. I walked out of that vet Wednesday pretty broken. Something in my shoulder still feels torn and my knees are scabbed up. But mostly I'm just sad. I haven't eaten much. I put down two fists of tequila since Wednesday. I have no memory of recording it, but I found a song on my phone that I guess I recorded Wednesday night. I'm going to play it on here if you wait to the end. When I think about why this hit me so hard, other than the pure closeness that I had with this animal, I think it's also because of what it represents. Lenny was there for parts of my life for which I have no other witness. There is no one to talk to. It was just me and her. And that hurts. In keeping with Lenny and how she lived, I have to move on. And that's going to be hard. As a compromise, I'm going to keep a couple of symbols. I'm going to get a good tattoo, for sure. I'm going to get that picture frame made that I talked about with the stick. I've been putting that off too long. I'm going to try to do these things and keep an open heart. I've already had one good dream about Lenny since she died. I dreamed that she was alive and well and that she was in my arms 
And then I was showing her to everybody. Now I know that dream is not coming true, but it feels good. If you're listening to this, thank you. And we'll continue the journey. I could cry.